side. Mick Dittman is squeezing through on naturalism's emanations there with heroicity. And here comes Viander Cross. Viander Cross down the outside is motoring home. Naturalism the leader. Viander Cross inch by inch is wearing him down. Naturalism still in front. He ran out near the line, but Naturalism wins at a half length to Viander Cross in a bumping finish. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and the High Gang Group. July is a very significant month in New South Wales country racing. It's the time when the Clarence River Jockey Club presents four days of top-class country racing beginning on Sunday, July the 10th with the running of the $80,000 South Grafton Cup. Wednesday, July 13, features the time-honoured listed Ramoni handicap worth $200,000, supported by the $80,000 Grafton Guineas. Thursday, July 14, sees the running of the $200,000 Grafton Cup over 2,350 metres. The Ramoni and the Cup have been run continuously since 1910, missing only four years during World War II. Perhaps the most celebrated of all Grafton Cup winners is Kenzai, who won the race a few months before his Melbourne Cup victory in 1987. The Clarence River Jockey Club will wind down the carnival on Sunday, 18th of July, with the McLean Cup. Grafton in July has been a mecca for horses, jockeys, and racing fans for well over a century. This year's carnival will be one of the best ever. Ray Warren's recent retirement from the Nine Networks Rugby League coverage had been the subject of widespread speculation for many months. The legendary broadcaster had been absent from the commentary box since the commencement of the NRL season, but fans were clinging to the slim hope that he might call just one more State of Origin series. One more that would have taken him to the neat century. Those fans and media colleagues alike were not surprised in late May when the broadcasting icon made the announcement that his 55-year career had come to an end. 55 years in which he'd covered 99 state of origins and 45 grand finals. He was a late starter in the field of swimming commentary, but made an instant impression. He went on to cover many Commonwealth Games and world title events and was at his brilliant best as he called the action from the 2012 London Olympics. Along the way, he also proved himself a race caller of innate talent, equally at home in any of the three racing codes. Nicknamed Rabbit or Rabs during his childhood in Junee, Ray has made a million friends on life's journey, combining a distinguished professional life with his love of a beer, a punt, a joke and the company of good mates. I first met Ray at the Harold Park Trots one night way back in 1968. We worked together for a few years after he joined the 2GB Macquarie team in 1969. Our careers went in separate directions when he elected to concentrate principally on rugby league commentary, but it was always good to catch up at a function or at the races. I followed his career very closely and I'm not one bit surprised to see this man reach the upper echelon of his chosen field. He's been absolutely bombarded with interview requests since making the announcement 
but has kindly agreed to squeeze us in on this Supernova Sound podcast. Rab's great to catch up. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Johnny, and uh, thank you for a lovely introduction. Most of us knew it was coming, but it brings a tinge of sadness nevertheless to many of us. Yeah, well, it brings a lot of sadness to me as well. I've got I to gotta be honest with you, I, I haven't gotten used to it yet, um, but I, I'm going to have to, um, mainly because the birth certificate was saying to me, you know, it's got to happen soon, um, and my wife was urging me to, to give it away, um, and I eventually thought to myself, well, last year I covered Origin and um, Grand Finals from the studio because of the pandemic, and I got through that comfortably, and I was very happy with that, and I thought, that'll do me, um, but I, I won't say anything until I've sat back for eight or nine weeks and watched the first part of this year as a as a viewer and not a commentator, mm. and I'm handling it okay. Many of your fans wanted you to reach that magical 100 state of origin calls. Was that ever a consideration? Oh, yeah, very much so, John. But it didn't really matter to me too much. When I thought to myself, if I do the number 100, it will be doubling as my last game ever because that, that was in my mind firmly that I, if I did game 100, it would be doubling as my final game. And I... To be honest with you, I don't think emotionally I could have handled it. Um, in fact, I'm sure I couldn't have handled it. And that would have seen me depart um, like so many so many people have departed on a low note rather than a high note. As I said, I was happy with last year, very comfortable. But I didn't want to go out blubbering on making mistakes simply because it was game 100. Um, more no. importantly, it was my last game ever to be. Mm. So I pulled the pin beforehand. It's been well documented that your self-confidence had diminished in recent years, which didn't show in your work. Only you knew about it. When did you first start to feel these insecurities? Um, as I grew older, you know, it became obvious to me that uh, I didn't have many years to go um, at, at the pressure that, that I was working under. I wasn't doing a lot of matches, but... They were always, to me, uh, an occasion, a, a big event, and that uh, that stirred the, the anxiety in me. And I mentioned my wife, Cher. She was at the coalface here every every match day and watching me get myself into a flap and, and God knows what. Driving at night time became more and more difficult. Um, there, there, were, there were several reasons uh, to think that, yeah, it, it's time, and and that that's the way it's turned out. But anxiousness has been with me all my life, and I think nerves, I think nerves in people like us uh, are good. Um, to a degree, they, yeah. Yeah, when they start proving to be a negative, as uh, one of my many doctors said to me, when they start proving to be a negative um, and they outweigh the positives, then maybe you're right, maybe it is time to call it. Mm. One of your many doctors, eh? I've got several, John. <laughs> I've got I've got several. The one I just mentioned, then um, a cardiologist. But when I have parties, uh, it, it you know you just 
you know if you get sick, there'll be somebody there to look after you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to your years in rugby league later in the chat, Rabs, but, and I'll get you to nominate a few favourites too uh, when we discuss that. But for now, I want to go back to your birth and your upbringing in the lovely Riverina township of Junee. You were the youngest of seven kids born to Joe and Wynne Warren. And you came along six years after their previous son, Bob, had arrived. I'll bet that gave him a shock. Yeah, I, I've always thought something went wrong, to be quite <laughs> frank with you. <laughs> I was like the poor relation, but no, not, not really. I, I became a very spoiled young, young brat at times, um, and I think it was mainly because of that big gap between me and my next eldest brother. But, yeah. Um, yeah, they had a big family, but there was there was no TV back in those days, Johnny. <laughs> no, that's right. They went to bed early. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. And they came. They they were living at Brushwood, and I can assure you, um, there wasn't a great lot of activity at Brushwood either. No, there was a good pacer from Brushwood, wasn't there, by the name of Brushwood Guy? One Absolutely of right. Yeah. I think he he might have carried a couple of blue colours. Yeah, he did. Yeah. I think yeah. He did. Correct. Well, your mum, Wynne, passed in 1988. Dad made it to 91 and you lost him in 1996. Sadly, you've lost four siblings in subsequent years. Sisters Betty and Val are still with us, but both in care, you tell me. That's right. Um, Yeah, Val's at Shepparton um, and Betty is down at... Shell Cove, Shellhaven, um, and they're both being looked after beautifully, and they can still have a chat. That's uh, that's uh, possible. Mm. They both they both eat very well. Um, Good. So you know, at their age, and I, I think Val's just turned ninety, and Betty's ninety-two, something like that. Yeah, you took me to Junie. I think in nineteen seventy for a couple of days. We flew to Narandra on a Sunday morning. And this was the first time I actually witnessed your discomfort on board an aircraft. <laughs> you, you were very towy on that flight, and I don't think you've improved much over the years, have you? No, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't improve, but I was made to go around the world three or four or five times doing rugby league and swimming, but I had to I had to. Just get on there and hang on, hang on tight, white knuckles, sweating, you know what I mean? I remember well. Our commitments on that little trip were to attend a trotting club dinner on the Sunday night, which turned out to be a very enjoyable occasion. And then we were to call a race or two each at the Junie Trots on the Monday night. But a freak downpour on the Monday afternoon put the trots off and you and I decided to catch the famous express train, the Spirit of Progress, back to Sydney. I think it left Junee Station at midnight. Sleep was pretty fitful uh, on that evening. <laughs> You're right. Actually, it was the poor brother of the Southern Aurora. There, there were two trains in those days, and those that could afford a sleeping carriage, they travelled on the Southern Aurora. And uh, those that were happy to sit up, uh, we were on the spirit of progress, but strangely enough, back in those days, there was a mail train. It used to go out about ten o'clock. It was called the Southwest Mail, um, so it, it, it was a very busy, 
a very busy railway town. In fact, if you didn't work on the railway, you probably didn't have a job down at June. We, we were all railway men. Uh, Dad, for instance, was a fettler. But at the end of the day, most people had, had something to do with railway. Mm. The old spirit of progress is a piece of trivia. was yeah. taken out of service in 1986. But do you know they continued to use a few of the old carriages right through until 2006? Really? Mm. Well, that, that, that is trivia. <laughs> <laughs> that is trivia. I'm sure it'll come in handy at a dinner party somewhere along the line. <laughs> Talking about the old Southwest Mail, it was, it was a train with carriages known as dog boxes. That's right. <laughs> there, were, there were no corridors. Uh, you you, you mm. had bundled into what they call a dog box, and, mm. uh, with, with due respects to the to the average dog. But yeah, you'd be cooped <laughs> up in a dog box for the entire trip. You couldn't go anywhere. You had your own toilet, yeah, bot- bottle of water, and you had a, a foot warmer. Mm. Um, but if you got locked up with a stark racing lunatic, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, your mum and dad. Lived in that yeah. quaint little cottage in Stewart Street at Junee, and that's where you and I stayed on the Sunday night. I remember your dad as a very likable little bloke uh, who had worked hard all of his life, and Mum Wynne was the quintessential hard-working country woman of her generation whose absolute priority had always been home and family. Yeah, no question about that, uh, John. Uh, Dad was a—he wasn't a big man. He, uh, he was about the size of yourself, really. But he was mm. wiry and he was tough, and he was, a, as I said, a fettler. Mm. He got promoted one day from being a fettler. <laughs> oh, he thought it was a promotion from fettler to labourer. Um, <laughs> but he, he could keep up with anybody, really. There were young, young—you know, sixteen, seventeen-year-old blokes around there shoveling sand and and coal and stuff and. He kept up with them quite easily. Mum, she catered for an occasional wedding. She cleaned the Commonwealth Bank. She cleaned the courthouse. Uh, she might have done a bit of cooking at the hotel. Mm. Yeah, she was, I think you use the word quintessential. I, I can't spell it, but I'm pretty sure that's what she was. Mm, yeah. Well, Ray, that's a long time ago, uh, our little trip to Juni. It's well over 50 years ago. Yeah, but, uh, I, I just I, I just got to say to you that, mm. that was one of the disappointments um, of my entire life. I think I I never actually got to call a trotting race um, at Juni, and I mm. don't think I ever called a football match either. So that was quite a regret for me when that big uh, that big storm came over that western hill. Mm. Well, it's a long time ago, but I've never forgotten the hospitality that your mum and dad extended to me that weekend. I can still see them. Great country people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and she prided herself on cooking. She was brilliant at cooking. Uh, but she had an awful habit, you know, you'd be sitting at the lunch table and she'd be saying, what do you want for dinner or what do you want for tea? <laughs> they called it tea back in those days. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't dinner, it was tea. Yeah, I remember. And you'd, you'd, be, you'd be hoeing into this big lunch or whatever and she'd be asking them, what do you want for dinner tonight, you know? Yeah. But that... That comes with the fact that she was, um, you know, back in those days, they only had fuel stoves and uh, they had to do a lot of cooking themselves, you understand? Mm-hmm. Can you imagine and- how proud they would have been to be in Juni in 2011 
for the unveiling of a bronze statue dedicated to you. Premier Barry O'Farrell was there, Channel 9 CEO David Gingell was there, and so was the good mate who first got the idea rolling, and that was 2GB's Ray Hadley. How did you handle an honour of that magnitude? Well, I'm surprised I got through it, actually. I eventually had to make a speech, and a speech of um, humility and and thanks, obviously, and you're quite right about uh, Ray. He and the continuous call, they started agitating, if you like, jokingly, mm. to the uh, council of Juni to erect a statue of Rabs. And um, as I, I think I'm making the point, they started it out as a joke and then it finished up becoming a reality and it became a bit serious to me because I was embarrassed about it. I didn't think I deserved a statue. And I travelled down and I met up with the mayor, Lola Cummings, and uh, I said, you can't. You can't do this. I said, number one, I don't want it. Mm. And number two, I said, it really started as a joke. And um, she just looked at me and she said, don't don't make yourself nervous over it. She said, we can't afford it anyway. Uh. So I, I went back uh, to, to Sydney and I, I said to I said to Boltz, I said, I've got you. He said, mm. what do you mean? I said, well, Juno hasn't got enough money to support it. And I said, I, I understand that and I'm quite happy about that. He mm. said, oh, okay, we'll see. Mm. So he rang back the next day. He said, got your back. I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he said, that, that mate of yours, David Gingell, he's agreed to underwrite the, the statue. Oh, dear. So that was it. Mm. I couldn't stop it. It just it washed over the top of me, the whole thing. Mm. And the occasion was just so beautiful. Um, thousands of people, mm. mind you, it coincided with Riverina Schoolboys Carnival Day. Mm. Um, so the streets were full. It was raining cats and dogs. Um, 2GB, they went down there and broadcast the continuous call from there. Mm. And as you pointed out, there were some luminaries there as well. Um, mm. And then I had to try and swallow that lump that you get in your throat when it came time mm. to respond. And, of course, sitting there at the same function were my, my brother Jack, my, my sister Betty, my, my sister Val. And oh, dear. Mm. And they're, they're in the front row, and you can see them wiping the tears, Sister Gwen. Uh, and I was thinking at the same time of Mum and Dad about three mm. kilometres out on the Gundigai Road in the cemetery and mm. wondering what they'd be thinking at this very moment. So it was very hard to get the words to come out. Mm. Ray, have you driven back into Juni since that day? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Past the statue? Oh, yeah, we, we go past the statue. Um, the pigeons are having a bit of fun there at the moment. But, <laughs> so, somebody will get round to cleaning cleaning that stuff off. Yeah, target practice, eh? Oh, yeah. Well, it's a big head, as you know. <laughs> well, like me, you were greatly influenced by the dynamic race caller, Ken Howard, who's Distinctive voice boom through radio speakers all around Australia on Saturday afternoons for more than three decades. And it was Ken who motivated you to roll marbles down a sloping board and pretend they were racehorses. That's right. Yeah, absolutely right. Mum and Dad loved to punt. They were betting in sixpences and shillings. Um, 
the SP bookmaker would come to the house and take their bets and he'd come back on the Monday with whatever they had to get back, if they had anything to come back. Mm. And, of course, uh, it was all happening in the kitchen. You've been to the house. and Yeah. Uh, we didn't live in the lounge room. In fact, I'm not sure there was a lounge room, but everything happened in the kitchen and the big valve radio, uh, about as big as a refrigerator, mm. uh, with Ken Howard booming out. Uh, the kitchen table um, was in the middle of the room, quite obviously. I used to ride a broom around around the table, pretending to be George Moore and Ken Howard. <laughs> and uh, mum and dad would be screaming their lungs out. And I suddenly got so fascinated with this fellow Ken Howard and and then I I accidentally fell upon the idea of rolling marbles down a slope and mm. and they became you know the big names of, of that particular era um, Playboy was my favourite because he won the Derby in 49 and Dad let me have sixpence on him That was the start Playboy won the Derby as a maiden That's right TJ mm. Smith George Moore and I was lured yeah. I was lured to back him because of the fellow George Moore, who I was practising on the broomstick to be as well, <laughs> as calling like Ken Howard. So mm. I'm, I'm starting to wander into what must be sounding like a nursery rhyme, but, but it's, it's all so, so true. And I was in that kitchen. I was a captive, if you know what I mean. I was a yeah. captive in my own kitchen. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And mum and dad did that every Saturday because that was the only day we got racing. Yeah. In fact, I think racing was only on a Wednesday and a Saturday. Yeah, it was back then. Uh, yeah. And the, the midweek races yeah. didn't get yeah. to air anywhere. No, no, no you're quite right. Mm. So um, I don't know how far you want me to go there, but um, I mentioned there that dad let me have sixpence on a, on a horse in the derby. And mm. um, that was that cemented the whole thing. That sort of made sure that I was going to remain interested in, in horse racing, but it also made me very interested in George Moore and Ken Howard. Mm. And when I eventually presented myself for an audition with Garth Carey, mm. he said, what are you trying to sound like Ken Howard for? And I said, well, he he's the best, and I thought it would be good to sound like the best. Mm. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, go away and come back another day with, with your own your own presentation and your own voice. So yeah. that's what it did. Well, his advice was sound. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. On leaving school, you followed your dad into the railways where you became an apprentice, fitter and turner. But yeah. That didn't last very long. So you decided to follow Brother Bob into the police force and the first step was to move to Sydney where you joined the New South Wales Police Cadets. That's right. The, the, the fitter and turner thing, uh, you know, it was very much the situation. Your parents would say, you know, you, you've got to get a job on the railway and and Dad suggested an apprentice fitter and turner. You said it didn't last very long. It, mm. it didn't last very long, a couple of years actually, but I found that I, I didn't particularly like uh, grease mm. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, I'm probably better off suited to a police uniform, and I'll follow Bob to Sydney. So that's what happened there. But um, they didn't terminate me as a fitter and turner, that's what I'm saying. Oh, no, no, I understand. I, I hope I didn't give that uh, impression. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> now, mate, you finished up then in Canberra to continue your training in the police force, but something happened soon after 
which saw you abandon the idea of spending your working life as a policeman. Are you at liberty to tell us? Yeah, well, I, I, I went to Canberra because the conditions down there were better. Pay-wise, housing-wise, they paid overtime. New South Wales didn't. So I went to Canberra, and I was only there for about three years, and I got this thing called a telegram mm. uh, from a man called John Finlayson, uh, who was the general manager of 2LF Young. And he'd been searching feverishly for a, a replacement football commentator, so he, he contacted Garth Carey. And uh, it was Garth that obviously told John Finlayson that there was a bloke called Warren, but he's in the police force now. And um, I got the telegram. So John Finlayson traced me down. And it just simply said, do you still want to be a sports commentator? Give me a ring on this number. So and I said, I said, what is it? And he said, calling footy. Can you call footy? I said, I think I can. Um, mm. Which was, you know, in, I suppose I was telling the truth, but I wasn't really because I'd never called a football match in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he he basically uh, bought me um, sight unseen and not knowing whether I could do it or I couldn't do it. But I arrived there about a week later. And that was the start of it. I, I started calling Mark up in Group 9, uh, unfortunately not for long because it sort of got interrupted by a rebel league down there called Murrumbidgee Rugby League. I won't mm. go into that because I'm not sure of the detail. Mm. But then I picked up um, a, the chance to call the trots, um, which Young provided me with that chance. Tamora joined in. Um, Harden gave me a go. West Wylong gave me a good go. Mm. And um, some dogs, some trots, and some horse racing. So I was as I was as happy as a pig in, you know. Mm. And um, then I got offered a job at 2GB, understudied to Ken and you. Another telegram. Exactly right, another telegram. <laughs> yeah. But I, by this stage, I was, as I just said, I was very happy, and I didn't want to go. Um, uh, Mark had just been born, and I was doing exactly what I wanted to do in life. Um, mm. But then a couple of my mates down there, Lindsay Regan and Gary Hopwood and John Favreau, they they combined forces and basically pushed me out of the joint and said, you've got to go. Mm. And so I went. And that's pretty much where I met you. Absolutely. Just before we leave 2LF, it was a very strong station, country station back in that era. And it was the training ground for two or three other uh, oh, yeah. presenters, commentators who went on to much bigger things later? Well, John O'Reilly um, was a native of Young um, and there hasn't been a better a football caller than John O'Reilly. Um, and he did the job that I actually fell into um, mm. and he then eventually finished up at the ABC in Sydney and he was calling rugby league on the sidelines alongside Frank Hyde and and Cole Pearce and Tiger Black and eventually Ray Warren. But mm. John was only one of uh, several kids from that area. Terry Buckeridge, he'd been there. Yeah. Um, Ken Sutcliffe. Ken Sutcliffe, he, yeah. He came there from Mudgee, yeah. The barber from Mudgee, he came over there. Mm. Um, but O'Reilly, John was a beautiful caller and I had tried to model myself on him. Um, People think I probably modelled myself on Frank, but as you pointed out, uh, we didn't get a lot of sports coverage on the radio 
um, up in Tunie. You know, we were getting the Macquarie relay from you people, mm. uh, and Frank was over on 2SM. So I spent a lot of time working, not working, but listening to John O'Reilly and, and eventually modelling myself on him a little bit. Ray, we'll just pause for a moment on the podcast to clear a commitment. We'll come back with you after this. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in pastry form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30 mil of recuperate drawn from the 500 mil bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. Okay, in 1969, you gained a start with 2GB Macquarie under the tutorship and leadership of the late Garth Carey. You and I teamed up for the provincial gallops, which back then were not heard on the network, but the broadcast was relayed to interstate betting rings all over Australia. And we became regulars at Wyong, Gosford, Hawkesbury, Kembla Grange, some of the bigger Newcastle meetings. Ray, the crowds were bigger at the provincial gallops back then uh, than they get to an average metropolitan meeting today, and the betting rings were strong. Yeah, that's true. And, of course, uh, we're dealing with the the impact that television has had, uh, particularly on... um, the four-legged sports, um, you can't have both. You just can't have your cake and eat it too. Um, mm. Once you start televising into, originally I know it was pubs and clubs, but once you start televising the event into a home and it's the middle of winter or whatever um, and there's a cost involved in getting there and having some lunch and all the rest of it, so people tend to, I think, uh, right across the, uh, the sports spectrum Mm. Uh, unless it's a big event, you know, like Melbourne Cup or State of Origin, uh, you get, you know, you, you're going to suffer a loss of people at the sport. It was inevitable, wasn't it? Uh, it it, it just ha- had to, to happen. Yeah. Yep. Well, we quickly established another little ritual in that pre-breathalyzer era, uh, which furthered our mateship. After the Gosford and Wyong races. We'd, we'd stop for a couple of noggins at the Blue Gum Hotel at Waitara on the way home. A lot of the racing people coming down from Gosford and Wyong would do the same thing. Yeah. After Kembla meetings, we'd break our journey, for want of a better expression, at the old Appen pub. And after the Hawkesbury meetings, the now defunct Aerodrome Hotel, yeah. uh, which was then owned by Kevin Bellamy, who later established a successful horse floating business. I remember Kevin. Uh, he's got a boy, I think, now training at Coss Harbour. But yeah, yeah, Brett, yeah, good trainer. Yeah. He was a, a the fellow we're talking about. He was a big, rollicking man who loved, loved life and 
He loved telling a gag and all the rest of it. Yeah. Back then, you would join me uh, on the network trotting service from Harold Park, which had begun in about 1968. That was a golden era in the sport, Ray. It was the age of champion horses and legendary horsemen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it also involved a couple of very good callers. Uh, in fact, the, the best uh, would be yourself and then Ian Craig and... He was calling brilliantly, and of course, I think Ray Conroy had, had yep. just about part of the scene. Des Hoisted was calling, but apart from that, you're referring to some of the great horses that were going around in those days, and I can, mm. I can still remember standing behind you when you called the Miracle Mile that involved Mount Eden. Oh, that yeah. was one of the most freakish things I've seen in sport. Uh, but, you know, you're talking about Hondo Grattons and Paleface Adios and all those sort of horses, Alwes. Yeah. yeah, I've got vivid memories of it. I, I was still still learning, still coming through, really. But um, you're right, the golden era. There was one brief but important little engagement that helped to lift your profile in those early days. Channel 9 introduced a Saturday night program called British Comedy Gone to the Dogs. It was a mixture of stand-up English comedians and yep. live racing from Harold Park or Wentworth Park. It was good for you at the time. Oh, absolutely. It was It was a new craft, um, and it took me a, a hell of a long time to understand how to do it. Um, and I don't know that I did it all that well anyway, but I. it was just another form of race calling. The, the problem... With dogs, though, is, you know, if you draw barrier one or box one, you get the red rug. Oh, yeah. But you might go around next Saturday night and you draw the four box, so you've got the blue rug. Yep. So, you know, remembering the colours of dogs is a total total waste of time compared with calling horse racing. But that uh, that fellow that was the, the compere for a long time on British Comic Gone to the Dogs was John McNally. Mm. And he passed away in the last six months, and um, he had a beautiful, beautiful voice. He, he did all the, all the classics, including Danny Boy and a lot of other songs. And he put it all together, basically, with Jeff Harvey. <clears throat> um, I think he was the producer. And Dogs went live to air there on that show, British Comedy Gone to the Dogs. And I was rowing my own boat. You know, I didn't have, I didn't have Tappy next to me. <laughs> to uh, to lift me out of the mire if I got into it, um, but it, it, you're right. It, it it was a sort of a a Shanghai uh, for me as far as career yeah. is concerned. Mm. You know, it must have been around 1972 <clears throat> when the Macquarie Board took the shock decision to abandon all of those famous talk programs that had been their trademark for decades to yeah. become the full time TAB station. Dogs, trots, gallops, 24-7. Now, the station plummeted from a 19% audience share to about 2%. It was great for the punters, but there was simply not enough of them to make the radio station viable. Uh, it was an incredible decision taken by the Macquarie Board way back then. Yeah, I don't know to this day whether the, uh, the TAB was even born, but I, I don't know whether they were subsidised to broadcast them or not either. 
later in my career, I worked a period of time at 2KY, and I know that they got paid to broadcast the dogs, the trots, the horses, yeah. um, and it was quite a substantial figure that the tab was paying every year. Um, so there may have been a method in um, their judgment in those days, but what, what transpired with 2GB, I'm not quite sure, because they had people like John Pierce and uh, Andrea, uh, Eric Gwen, Bohm, Gwen Plum, Dieter Gwen Cobb, Plum, Howard yeah. Craven. It was a stable yeah. of stars, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, and then they, I, I think they were still using the Macquarie Auditorium downstairs to make mm. live live radio programs that were involved. Well, no, I'm, I'm going, no. Before that, in mm. the Macquarie Auditorium, they led the way, you know, with people like Jack Davey and Bob Dyer and all those sort of people. Oh, yeah, incredible. Incredible era. In radio yeah, but history, for them, for them to for them to drop off that highway they were on and yeah. then go to the to go to our sports um, was quite incredible. Mm. Uh, the TAB was inaugurated in 1964, so it had been operating for a long time before 2GB decided to go uh, the full tab coverage. Well, they and, might have got paid very well to do it. I don't know, yeah. John. Yeah, Ray, I don't know that they did back in that era. Uh, I think they carried most of the costs themselves. Yeah, fair enough. One sad memory from that part of 2GB's history was the tragic death of a young greyhound caller called Ozzy Smith. Yeah, Who won a well. lot of praise in the short time he was with us. He lost his life in a motor accident. Yes, he did. And I remember basically throwing him the keys and saying, welcome aboard. And mm. he was a brilliant greyhound caller. Mm. Um, I'm sure he could have called the whole three sports if he wanted to, but he was a brilliant greyhound caller and he, he lived that sort of stuff, greyhound racing. It was a very sad time. It was, uh, yeah. in, in your career and mine and in 2GB history. You know, yeah, well, I, I sort of I played a, a, a minor role, I suppose, and, and you played a similar role. We we fossicked around looking for people that could call yeah. um, whatever we had to cover uh, with that new look radio station, calling the TAB Sports, and somehow or other I tripped over Aussie, and he turned out to be a, an absolute boomer of a caller. He was a whiz, wasn't he, on the dogs? An absolute mm. whiz. You know, like a bolt from the blue one day. You were directed by Garth Carey to report to the SCG to call a league match yeah. because regular caller Brian Surtees had taken ill. Tell me about that day, the day that would play such a part in shaping your future. Well, I can't remember the, the actual day, but I, I can remember that I was heading for Randwick uh, to get cups of coffee, I think, for Ken. <laughs> and um, I got, as you said, I got redirected, rerouted across to uh, the Sydney Cricket Ground, mm. and I'd only ever been there as a spectator from memory, but here I am with a technician with a card table and a couple of chairs and ambling out towards the sideline, and I can remember, uh, I think it was the reserve grade match, the winger on the far side of the ground, all you could see was his head. Uh, because the, the ground has and always will have a, a rise in the middle. Um, and, of course, you didn't have the luxury of a broadcasting box with air conditioning. You were sitting on the sideline. Mm. Alongside, here we go again, Frank Hyde, Tiger Black, Cole Pearson, John O'Reilly. Mm. 
And I was only to call in between races. I understand that. I used to call the full game on a Sunday. But Frank had a, a massive audience uh, on 2SM mm. because they were uh, continually calling football and they weren't doing racing. But as well as that, they were they were very much listened to, or he was, because he was so damn good, you know. Mm. But um, it was a, a, an eerie feeling, I can assure you, just sitting there waiting for the crosses to be made by Garth Carey to Ray Warren at the football and thank you, Garth and George have just scored another try and mm. away we'd go. And, and then that led to me actually being the regular caller. And I, you know, I, I feel so sorry that Brian, Brian, he came out on the wrong side of that because he got ill that day. Uh, mm. He was a casual from mm. down at uh, Wollongong and yeah. I was, a, I was a permanent. So Garth in his wisdom put me in as the full-time caller. And next thing, I'm on an aeroplane going to New Zealand to cover a mini kangaroo tour. And um, so this major part of my career was on its way. Yeah. Um, and, and that's basically what happened. In 1974, the AMCO Cup was launched by the 10 Network, a nighttime knockout concept which involved many teams. You were very flattered to be offered the job as chief caller, but you agonised over your decision, I remember well. Yeah, I, I did, John, because I, I was leaving behind for the most part. I, I still called races, as you know. I I basically hung in there trying to do everything that I could um, mm. until I, I got a full-time offer from um, Channel 10 to go to them. It was 1978. Oh, it was it? Yeah. Um, but the Amco Cup, it started uh, the ball rolling in 74. Uh, I remember I'd done a World Cup tour in 73 after the invitation had been extended to me. Mm. And when I came back, I found that I was to share uh, the commentary with Kerry Buckeridge, who worked for Channel 10 full time. And I think Channel 10 wanted Kerry to do it um, on his own. But Kevin Humphrey stepped in and said, no, we asked Ray to do it, but let the two of them share it. So mm. we originally started out sharing the two boys from 2LF Young, just to, to hark back. Mm. Um, you and Bucko. Me and Bucko, yeah. Mm. So that, that, that vehicle, that Wednesday night at Leichhardt, it went through for me personally until 1986, mm. 13 years I had. Um, mm. Journeying down to Leichhardt of a Wednesday night and, Jumping on aeroplanes, flock of friendships, um, up to Brisbane, wherever, wherever. We flew into Orange for a semi-final one day, and there were teams from wide and far, teams mm. from all around Queensland, Wide Bay, Central Queensland, mm. Winner Manly, and down here, Western Division, Riverina, Newcastle. And uh, the people out there grabbed it. They loved it. And the very first year, 74, Penrith played Western Division, which featured a fellow called Ted Ellery. Mm. And um, Western Division, believe it or not, they pulled it off. Johnny King was the coach. Yeah. And TV Ted, he was the star of the show. <laughs> During your time with the 10 Network, you regenerated your passion for race calling when you got to call three Melbourne Cups 
beginning with Belldale Ball's win in 1980 for Robert Sangster, Colin Hayes and Johnny Letts. You were a bit toey on the day, you tell me. Oh, I think I drank half a milk of milkshake container of my Lanta, to be honest with you. <laughs> it, 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 it was part of my doctor's kit, um, mm. the my Lanta, but I... I was dry reaching and God knows what. Uh, I'd never been to Flemington and mm. um, I, they provided me with a, a, a broadcasting box that I wasn't accustomed to. But, uh, mm. you know, the wide stretches of Flemington, I'd never seen that, never seen the like of it. 24 horses, uh, never seen the like of that either. Yeah. Um, oh, it's a tough and, call, the cup. Oh, well, you know better than me and, I mean, Mm. But at the end of the day, it was it was Brian Morris who was in charge of Channel Ten. He he and I became close friends, and we socialised together. And he knew I had a dream to call a Melbourne Cup, and so he he made that possible with those three cups. And that first one, um, Beldale Ball, Sir Robert Sangster, was it Sir Robert or not? No, not then. Yeah. No. So Robert Sangster had two in the race, John. One was called Bohemian Grove and the other was called Beldale Ball. Mm. And they put a red cap, I think, on, on one of them. On the um, winner, I think, Beldale Ball. Beldale Ball, yeah. Yeah. Something tells me one of them lost their cap in running. Mm. And it became a little bit it became a little bit nerve wracking in the run. But but John uh, from memory had taken Beldale Ball to the lead, so I, I think I knew that and mm. So it didn't matter whether Bohemian Grove had a cap on or not, really. Mm. But no, it was a it was a nervous call, as you would imagine. And I I know in my heart of hearts I could have done it much much more justice. But I just wanted to get through safely, yeah. um, comfortably and safely and nervously. Mm. And then I got to do two more: um, Justice Ash and. Gurners Lane beating yeah. Kingston Town. Yeah, yeah. I think the, all of Australia wanted Kingston Town to win, and I'm sure you would have, principally because of your great friendship with Malcolm Johnston. That's true. That's mm. true. And I can remember Mick uh, Dittman Road, Gurners Lane, and I, I studied Gurners Gurners Lane on the way to the barrier by repeating Parramatta Colours, Parramatta Colours, Parramatta Colours, Gunners Lane, Gunners yeah. Lane. You know. And a crack um, of a ride by Dittman too. I think his ride had a lot to do with the win. Oh, absolutely. You know, people thought Malcolm Malcolm went too soon or whatever and he moved away and left the run for Gunners Lane to eventually take. I think it was thrown by Jeff Murphy. He was a lovely man. He was and a, a great character. Yeah. Um, yeah, pro rata, he probably had as many good horses as any other trainer of that era. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I always, I always pull people up in a, in a, a debate we might have when we're having having an odd chardonnay. You know, mm. if you rode for Tommy Smith, you were considered to be the leading jockey because you won the premiership, and mm. that word, those words, pro rata, very, very important. Mm. I was only looking the other day at the, the jockeys and uh, their their strike rate and their return for a dollar investment. I'll, I'll tell you who rates very highly. Mm. Josh Parr. Does he? Bloody oath he does, yeah. Mm -mm. yeah I'm not frightened about Josh Parr. I'll give you the tip. Oh, if they're good enough, they win. Yeah. Now, Ray, 1986, you mentioned that year uh, a minute or two back, brought the lowest point of your life when Channel 10 poached Rex Mossop 
from the Seven Network. You were about 43. It was yeah. a time in your life when you needed stability. Yeah, I I must admit that hurt, um, only because nobody ever told me what I was doing wrong. Um, mm. It was more to do with what Rex was doing right. Yeah, yeah. And I'm the first to admit that. I mean, I worked with him on radio. He was my co-commentator. We were quite good friends, but... Behind my, well, basically, stealthily, uh, the negotiations were going on. I didn't know they were going on. And then I got a call to go over there, and my best friend over there, John Davies, uh, he said, come and see me. And he said, we've just signed a new contract with the league, but you won't be doing it. And I said, what are you talking about? Anyway, he said, mate, I asked to be the one to tell you this, but he said, They've signed Rex Mossop. Oh, dear. Because uh, mm. they, they wanted him, basically, more than anything, they wanted him to do the news because um, he was getting big figures at Channel 7 with an extended um, sports report in the news. And I I just walked out of there and I, I felt so empty and they offered me, they said, you can do racing. I said, you haven't got any racing. You know? mm-hmm. But anyway, they said, well, you can hang on and do the... the the grand final, if you like, um, or you can go today. And I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do the grand final. I said, nobody's told me what I've done wrong yet. Mm. Um, so anyway, I, I hung in there and I did the rest of the year and I called the 86 grand final and I put the binoculars down and I, I thought, well, that's the end of the dream. Mm. I sincerely thought that was the end of the dream. Not so. Do you recall the day, the moment, the circumstances of your initial approach from Channel 9. How did it happen? Well, I was in the kitchen um, at uh, a humble home that we had at Northmead and the phone rang, the landline phone rang, Mm. and um, it was a fellow who said, this is Ian Frickberg. I said, yeah, mate. I said, said, we met met over the Commonwealth Games in New Zealand. He said, that's right. Mm. And he said, uh, how would you like to do league again? So this was the back end of 91. And I said, oh, I'd, I'd love to. He said, well, how long do you need to think about it? I said, about five seconds. <laughs> I said, count me in. He said, right, you're in. Mm-hmm. And then he he started sucking my brain about co-commentators. And I, I immediately pulled uh, Peter Sterling's name out of my mind because uh, he'd been driven into the ground by David Gillespie a little bit earlier on in that particular year and he wasn't going to continue playing. So Mm. Sterling and I both started there um, in 92 and uh, I ended it basically this year and so did he. Mm. Well, what a ride it's been and an amazing journey uh, that has taken you to the absolute pinnacle of sports broadcasting. Did I read somewhere the other day that your favourite game was the all-Queensland grand final between the Cowboys and the Broncos in 2015 at ANZ? A golden point game, 17-16 to the Cowboys and Jonathan Thurston was the hero. That's right. Um, I, I, I don't know whether it was my all-time favourite game. I... I think it was the most entertaining game I've seen. It certainly had uh, a climax to a game that I, I don't think I've seen before, might never see again. It just had everything happening all at the same time, and it was a game that was in some ways despised 
by many who thought, oh, this will, this will be a total failure, mm. uh, with um, the two Queensland sides doing battle on a paddock in, in Sydney. I shouldn't call it a paddock, but mm. uh, doing battle in Sydney. Uh, so how's it going to attract a crowd, you know? But it was a full house, mm. and it was a wonderful spectacle, and it had all the drama I can remember. You know, Kyle felt scoring in the corner to level um, Jonathan Thurston takes the kick for conversion on a 45-degree angle from the touchline. Mm. He hits the framework of the uprights at the, the southern end and it bounces away. Mm. And then they go into Golden Point and they kick off and the ball sails down to the, uh, the river end of the ground and Ben Hunt puts it down, knock on, scrum. Mm. They win the scrum as they should and it finds the golden boot of Jonathan Thurston. One point, thank you, Linesman, thank you, ball boys. <laughs> Ray, that sounded like one of your famous commentaries. I enjoyed that. Well, I've got fond memories of that, that particular game, Johnny, I really have. And, and mm. I've got to work with a lot of these people since, you know, Jonathan Thurston, he's a lovely, lovely man. Um, mm. Brad Fittler, Wally Lewis, Darren Lockyer. Peter Sterling, Paul Vorden, oh, God, the list goes on. The amazing Gus. You've had tremendous admiration and respect uh, for Gus's knowledge and the way he imparts it. Absolutely, yeah. He uh, is obsessed with the game. In fact, the game, I, I think the game ate Philip, uh, Philip Gould. Uh, he, he just knows. I know he comes over sometimes as though he knows everything, but you just can't stop him. He, he loves it, and nine times out of ten, he's right. Uh, he's got all the tactics in his head. In commentary, he'll be answering his telephone, texting people and gauging the opinion of the punter out there. Um, he can do things that, that no one else I know can do. Uh, and he also understands the bottom line of television and radio is, is to entertain. Mm. Whether you're entertaining with knowledge or you're entertaining with humour, um, one day I, I remember if I've got time to tell it, we were doing a match in Melbourne, and Melbourne were winning by forty, and there were twenty minutes to go. So you know you got you got viewers turning off all over the place, and mm. he said to me, I was trying to call a try, and he he said to me, rabbits, why are the seagulls assembling down at that other end? And, and I kept calling and. Rabbits, rabbits, he said, seagulls, they're back again down at that, that end. There's nobody there, just seagulls. What's, mm. Why are they doing that? Mm. So I kept calling and he kept butting in. But he, he was rocking with laughter and the, the, <laughs> the crew in the broadcasting box, they were laughing their heads off. And mm. I thought, well, if this is entertainment, let's keep going. Mm. Yeah. But no, he, he, was, he was part of a, a wonderful group of commentators. But, of course, he, he was a different commentator because of that deep-seated knowledge of the game and the obsession that he had with the game and the passion for the game mm. and the knowledge of the game. Yeah. Now, mate, time's on the wing, but I've got to ask you this question because I know many of our listeners will want me to ask it. I'm sure you've drawn up a short list of your personal favourite rugby league footballers and your assessment will be widely respected. So just brush through them for me, will you? 
Well, I, I know you said to me jot down about ten, but I, I I had to go a bit deeper than that, John. But uh, names names like this, uh, Fulton, Beetson, these are people that I broadcast. I mm. I can't lay claim to people like Reg Gaznier and Johnny Raper. No. Graham Eady, Wally Lewis, Andrew Johns, Meninga Langlands, Coop, Sterling, Kenny, Thurston, Cameron Smith, Slater, Lockyer, Malcolm Reilly, Kenny Irvine, Steve Mortimer, Glenn Lazarus, Shane Webke. They, you know, they, it's a tsunami um, rushing over the top of me trying to remember mm. who that I should put in there. Um, and of course, I, I, I haven't dealt really too much there with the modern day player, but um, Trebojevic, there's a, there's a fellow that is dominating the game at the moment when he's not injured. Mm. So that's just a brief view into the into the memory bank of, of, of Ray Warren. Yeah, And it gave me goosebumps listening to it. Now, Ray, in making the transition from radio to TV in league commentary, you very quickly recognised the dangers of being too wordy. You simply yeah. used enough words to embellish the pictures that people were watching at home. And you developed a unique way of doing this. You use the crowd as your barometer. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's the key uh, to broadcasting any sport, to be honest with you. It's called light and shade. But we are talking television. I understand the job of the radio commentator is vastly different because he's trying to paint the picture. He's painting a word picture. Mm. of what you're seeing, you know. Um, but in television, they're watching it. So to use an expression of Richie Benno, he said, I only talk when I'm adding to the product. Mm. And I, I've never forgotten that, to be honest with you. But instead of using a lot of words, you can probably get away with the aid of the picture there. You can get away with just one word um, uh, and, and let the crowd tell the story. They loved it. And one word, brilliant, something like that. Mm. Brilliant, you know. It, it's just there's a bloke six foot in the air, and he comes down with the ball. He plants it down. You could, you could, you know, call till the cows come home on radio and make it sound even more fantastic than it was. But mm. on TV, all you would need to say is classical, yeah, or brilliant, yeah. Um, but the crowd, they're so important to. to to me as a commentator, and I hope a lot of other commentators agree with me. You know, if they go up, you go up. If yeah. they come down, you come down. Light and shade. You and your first wife, Monica, produced two boys, Mark and Chris. You and your second wife, Sure, are the parents of a daughter, Holly, and your three kids between them have presented you with four grandchildren. Three boys, Joe, Bobby and Matteo, and one granddaughter, little Matilda. Yeah. Yeah, you got that right. Perfectly. Perfectly put. Uh, Matilda, in fact, is the eldest of, of Chris's three. Mm. And Joe and Bobby. And Matteo, he's, uh, he's just four and a half. He, he's camped here. Uh, he's camped here for the time being. Um, <laughs> one of us is going to... One of us is going to uh, be sent home tonight, I think, is the way they say they didn't celebrity apprentice. <laughs> is that house big enough for Rabs and Mateo? <laughs> <laughs> it's starting to, it's starting to seem like a, like a, a 
Western movie, you know. Yeah. John Wayne and Billy the Kid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ray, the Nine Network has indicated they'll be calling on your services from time to time and using the voice that has become synonymous with the game of rugby league in Australia. I think you'll love that. You'll enjoy that involvement. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've been so damn good to me. I mean, that was another part of the dream, really. I wanted to work on... I wanted to work for Channel 9, Wide World of Sports. I really did. And why? Because a lot of my heroes worked for Channel 9, and those heroes included Ken Howard and yourself. And so that was always part of... uh, my diet, I wanted to get there if I could. And um, they, they've they now got me on a lifetime contract, so hmm. that'll only expire when I actually, when I turn it up. Um, well, I have turned it up, but I, I'll still be doing some voices and something for them, you know. I know what you mean. Right off into the sunset. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. It's been bothering me actually since I was born. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> This, amazingly, is the first time I've had the pleasure to interview you one-on-one. And I just want to add my congratulations to the hundreds you've already received as you bring down the curtain on a truly magnificent career in the Australian media. Ray, the standard you've set, and this is my opinion, not yours, the standard you've set will serve as the benchmark for future generations. And thank you for paying me the compliment of joining our little podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Well, thank you. Uh, There's not much I can say. That's a massive rap, and I I appreciate it coming from you particularly. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder. Time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com, or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world.